Hello all, warmest welcomes to yet another bonus Patreon episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. For the ears of you kind supporters, these episodes will usually be saved for subscribers only, and if they are released on the regular enthusiast, then it's either for the voted for one that's on the show's birthday, as I do every year, or if they're needed to be released in the event of an apocalypse or an Armageddon, like something like that's going to happen. Oh shit, yeah, of course it has. No. No, I'm just joshing with you. At this bloody point, I wouldn't be surprised if Jurassic Park came true this year. Do you know what I mean? I'm of course Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast that gives the show its title. You guys are the cherished supporters who help the show go forward and who have my utmost gratitude for supporting as you do. It means the absolute bloody world to me and each of you guys rule. You really do. You friends, welcome. Usual suspects, welcome back. Now if you're listening to a bonus bit of The Enthusiast for the first time here, then you'll find with these bonus episodes, you don't get the usual waffling at the start of the regular show as I do, and I know that I do that a bit. Plus there are no adverts, there are no live reads for products or any show promos. We're straight down to the case in question, like Amber Heard spoiling for a scrap. Now the case that I've chosen for the bonus episode this time around, bonus number 31, I do warn you guys, it's horrendous, it really is. You'll hear it, and afterwards, I hope that you'd feel as I do by thinking, why on earth isn't this one remembered or more familiar? Because sadly, it really isn't. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving crimes against a child, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use your discretion as always whilst you're listening in, folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a bonus Patreon episode I've entitled Devil in the Doll's House. So we head back to the year 1988 for the episode and to the Lancashire seaside town of Morecambe. Now, for those who've never heard of it, a couple of stats. Morecambe Bay is the second largest one in Britain. It was the location of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution's first active life-saving hovercraft, the Hurley Flyer. And for 34 years, from 1956 to 1989, it was the home of the Miss Great Britain contest. Famous offspring of Morecambe include boxer Tyson Fury, designer Wayne Hemingway, Actress Dame Thora Heard, who I always thought she got worked like Kermit did, and probably its most famous son, John Eric Bartholomew, who actually took the name of the town for his stage name, Eric Morecambe, and who there's a statue of doing his bloody silly dance in the town. But my favourite stat for the episode is that Morecambe is the home to the Radford family, who are recognised as the UK's largest, consisting of Noel and Sue Radford, and they're 22 children and 5 grandkids. Sue and Noel, married almost 30 years, obviously never had a telly. North Lancashire, particularly Morecambe, has long been a favoured stopping-off point for members of the travelling community, particularly during the summer months when there are hundreds of travellers passing through the county heading for the traditional horse fair that's held each year up in Appleby in Westmoreland in Cumbria. As a result, several permanent campsites have long been established, and one of these is Mellishaw Caravan Park, a 40-plot site located today just off Lancaster Road, which adjoins Morecambe's Mellishaw Lane and is quite close to the western bank of the River Loon. Travellers had first begun parking up on land off Mellishaw Lane in 1974, where they developed a temporary campsite. But frequent flooding to the initial plot had led to it being closed down after just 18 months, causing many of the community to then set up illegal pitches on the nearby Whitelund Industrial Estate, a prime place for them to pick up casual work and to peddle scrap metal. So with sometimes more than 100 families parked up on the Whitelund Estate, by the 1980s Lancashire County Council had decided to build a permanent campsite. Council officials from both Lancashire County Council and the National Gypsy Council worked closely together on a project and as a result, Mellishaw Caravan Park was opened in 1983. Now at the time, the park consisted of just 19 pitches with separate amenities blocks housing washing and cooking facilities, 
toilet with running hot and cold water, but this expanded over the years and it's still open today, although in January 2020 it was bought for a nominal fee and taken over by Lancaster City Council. Today it has 40 plots on it. Back in the 1980s, each plot had hookup facilities for providing electricity, and as part of that then modern network of secure purpose-built traveller sites that were provided by the county council. Families wishing to set up home there had to apply firstly to Lancaster City Council in writing, then sign a lease agreement when they were accepted and pay a weekly site fee. Most of the caravans on the site were statics, but the odd trailer home and even traditional wooden caravans were not uncommon sites there parked in an arc around a large circular mound of grass at the heart of the site. It even had a dilapidated but traditional red-painted wooden gypsy caravan to welcome visitors at the site entrance. Now Mellishaw was an extremely popular site, particularly with members of the Irish travelling community. By 1988, the park had become mainly a residential one, with most of the families setting up home there on a permanent long-term basis. Nearby residents had readily accepted the travellers into the local community because some people can be funny about things like that for some reason, can't they? But not there. All residents mixed easily with locals, becoming regular customers in the local pubs and shops, and children living on the park were soon happily enrolled in schools across the area. Council welfare officers would call in to see the families as part of a weekly round to ensure that all was well with the children living at Mellishaw, and it was, the place was such a successful site that the turnover of families was slow and as a result there was a long waiting list for places. One family who were in February 1988 giving up a place there however were the Lowther family. They'd only been at the park for three months since November 1987 but they had itchy feet. It wasn't that they hadn't liked Lancashire but they wanted to be nearer to James Lothar's family and had formerly been in Middlesbrough, which they'd liked even more. It was a part of the country that they knew well. In fact, it was where James and Carol Lothar, both of whom had been brought up in the travelling community, had first met as teenagers in the early 1980s and Carol Johnston, as she was then, had moved there to be closer to some of her 13 brothers and sisters. When the time came for her to move on, James had followed Carol all the way down to his sister's caravan in Wakefield, had knocked on the door and had immediately asked her out. They'd been together ever since and by that time, February 1988, had three children. The eldest, five-year-old Margaret, or Marga as she was commonly known, three-year-old Joseph and baby James, who was just five months old. The Lothers had headed down to Mellishaw specifically so Carol could have the support of her family members following the birth of James, but were now planning to head back up to the Teesside area of Stockton to be nearer to James's family. James was even in talks with the park site warden over them obtaining a new caravan for the move. The highlight of their brief Mellishaw stay had been the previous Christmas, when the eldest child Margaret excitedly decorated the big tree that they'd bought and that she couldn't wait to telephone her nan from the phone box at the end of the lane to excitedly describe. The little girl had excitedly babbled on to her about the Christmas list that she'd made for Father Christmas and all that she wanted and sure enough on the big day she was to get several of the things that she'd asked for including a black curly haired doll that soon became her favourite toy. Now the travelling community at Mellishaw, as with everywhere in that community, was a tight-knit group and many of the residents there were blood relatives. This was the only world that Carol Lothar knew and the 19-year-old mother felt happy and safe knowing that she was surrounded by the people closest to her, the people that she should feel safest amongst. Just park that thought. By Wednesday the 17th of February, the family had just two days left before they were planning to move, and as a result, were still in the midst of the chaos that comes with any move, I'm sure that many of you listening know. Especially harder if you live in a static caravan with a family, including three children under six. When they'd first arrived in Morecambe, the family had shared a smaller caravan, 
but had more recently moved into a larger static home that house-proud Carol kept as homely as possible. Like Royal Dalton dolls lined the caravan shelves, and a vase of fresh flowers was a constant sight on the caravan table. So Carol had all of this to pack up for the move, plus umpteen loads of washing to do. And back in the 1980s, in common with most of the caravans that were parked on the site, there was no room for the washing facilities we mostly take for granted today. So Carol was busy using the large twin tub machine that was housed in the park's wash shed to do laundry in preparation for their move. And with a family of three small children, I'm sure you can imagine there was plenty of that to do, and Carol and the machine were working overtime. I remember my mum actually having one of these twin tubs back in the day, and what a monstrosity of a thing, it used to make a right bloody noise and all. So while Carol was busy with this washing and packing up, Margaret was pushing her four-month-old baby brother in his pram, trying to get him off to sleep. The little girl loved playing with prams and dolls, being a real girly girl, and doted on her baby brother, whom she loved playing mum with. She'd dress her favourite doll in his clothes and would happily play for hours like this. Now Margaret's cousins lived in the caravan and plot eye of the site, and as Carol got back to her caravan on the park's plot G, and busied herself folding up Marga's clothes and putting them in the airing cupboard, drying them in preparation for their move. Just before 5pm, Marga asked her if she could go round to her cousins for an hour to watch videotapes of old 70s and 80s children's TV sitcom Wurzel Gummidge with them, which Marga loved. Now Wurzel Gummidge, if you've never heard of it, was a TV show about a scarecrow that could come to life and he'd often go off having adventures with a couple of kids that he'd befriended whilst being madly in love with and constantly chasing Sherlock's landlady Mrs Hudson, well the actress who plays her, Eunice Stubbs, who was some sort of life-size doll called Aunt Sally. Now I remember the show from when I was a kid and I remember it kind of creeped me out at the time I think it was because he had interchangeable heads that were made from turnips and he'd be like, oh, I'll put me clever head on today or where's me good looking head? You know, don't know, personally, I didn't like it, thought it was creepy. Now, whether Carol liked Wurzel Gummidge or not, she wasn't keen on Mark venturing out into the dark alone. It was mid-February, it was bitterly cold and windy outside plus the storms that had battered the Lancashire coast in recent weeks had left the site looking like Glastonbury. But Marga was insistent, and by that time her father James had arrived home, and together, Marga and he persuaded Carol to let the little girl go out. It was only next door but one, and it may give them that bit of extra space to prepare stuff for their move, without a five-year-old underneath their feet, so off Marga happily went. Forty or so minutes later, as the 5.45pm news came on the television in the Lothar's caravan, Carol left the chicken soup that she was heating up on the cooker and went and shouted Marger in for a tea, but to no reply. There was no reply and no sign of Marger when she shouted again about five minutes later, but her husband James told her not to worry and to leave Marger out playing he would fetch her in as he was heading out at that moment to speak to the camp warden about the new caravan that the family were hoping for. But Carol couldn't settle with this and remained by the caravan door for several minutes, shouting for Marga to come in for her tea. When there was no sign of her daughter, she went out to see at first if she was playing in the family car, thinking that she might have even fallen asleep in the back seat. As she was looking here, she then spotted her niece, Coralina, and asked her where Marga was, to which Coralina told her that she and her cousin had been playing in a shed at the rear of the camp, known to the site children as the Doll's House. But as Coralina had been shouted back in for tea, last she'd seen Marga, she'd been with another cousin of theirs, a 17-year-old youth named John Johnston. Carol was to describe much later that although she didn't know why at the time, an involuntary chill ran down her spine. Marga would never have left the site with someone else, even a cousin, without telling her parents first. And Carol descended into panic, screaming for Marga to come home. Such was the panic in her voice that residents across the Mellishaw site were roused and came out to see what all of the commotion was about. 
and once it was ascertained that little Marga could not be found, the community kicked into action. Friends and relations of the Lothers began a systematic search of the site, including looking in their own cars and caravans to see whether the child could have slipped into one of these unnoticed. As two members of the site, Carol's brother, William Johnston, and a cousin of theirs, Ronnie Price, were searching around the area of the camp gate, by now some 45 minutes plus after Carol had first shouted for her daughter, they came across the figure of John Johnston, making his way back from a nearby Asda with some confectionery. They asked him if he'd seen Marga during the time that he'd been out, and Johnston replied that no, he hadn't. The three of them started walking back towards the plots where they lived, and as they approached, thinking that she could see Marga there with them, Carol ran over, relieved that her daughter was safe and ready to give her a massive hug, followed by a stern talking to for disappearing without letting her know where she was going. But the little girl wasn't with them. Having been told by her niece that Marga had last been seen with him, Carol asked John Johnston where Marga was, to which without hesitation he said that he'd left her at the shop, although he didn't explain why or wasn't pressed further about this. In the darkness, no one could notice that Johnston's clothing was also heavily mudstained and dishevelled, and as Carol and her brother William now headed off through the main entrance to the camp, and onto Lancaster Road towards the Asda, shouting and calling for Marga, John Johnston, meanwhile, slipped off in midst of the hue and cry, where he showered and changed his filthy clothing. Carol and her brother walked the entire length of the direct route from the camp to the local Asram back, out onto the Lancaster Road before heading onto Ovangle Road and off onto Saltair Lane, one either side of the road, all the while calling for Marga. Now by this time, as you can imagine, the poor woman was hysterical with panic. I can't even begin to imagine the fear that must be put on a parent. It must be the stuff of nightmares, that. Somebody had by that time wrapped a blanket around Carol's shoulders, but who exactly, she didn't know. Everything by then was just a blur, with voices urging her to keep calm and reassuring that everything would be alright, they would find Marga. But there was no sign of the little girl on their journey, and no one at the Asda remembered seeing her, so there was nothing to do but make their way back to the campsite. When they arrived back, there was a crowd of people milling around the warden's caravan at the bottom of the site, and as they watched, Carol noticed two paramedics rushing inside. As Carol and William were making their way towards the Asda, John Johnston had joined another of his uncles, Ongi Price, to head out and search for the missing child in Ongi's car. As the two headed onto Ovangle Road, Johnston suggested that the two pull up in a lay-by just off the main road. There was a waste tip close by here at the time, and they noticed a fire burning near to it, so the two men got out of the vehicle and went to look around the area, Johnston climbing up over the tip alone to carry out a search. He'd only been out of sight for a few minutes when Ongi was disturbed from the patch of land he was searching by Johnston's cries and as he raced towards where the shout had come from, Johnston appeared out of the darkness with a small body in his arms, wrapped in his grey coat. He explained that he'd seen a man about 20 yards away who was carrying Marga across the tip, but that startled, the man had dropped her into the mud when Johnston had sworn at him and had run off at high speed. Johnston had decided not to chase the man, but instead had dropped to his knees to see if there was any response from Marga. He tried talking to her and feeling for breath, but there was no response. The two men placed little Marga into the passenger seat of Ongi's car and shook her in an attempt to rouse her, but it was no use. So driving high speed back to the caravan park, when they arrived back there, they carried the little girl to Johnston's mother, Davina, who then carried her niece to the warden's caravan. Watching this, Johnston said to Ongi, They've killed her. With that, the two men got back into the car and headed back towards the fire down the road that they'd seen in an attempt to find the man that Johnston claimed to have seen carrying Marga off. As the emergency services were contacted, 
Others at the site tried to resuscitate little Marga until paramedics arrived when they took over. As soon as she'd seen the paramedics entering the caravan, Carol had made her way there, but was restrained from doing so by several travellers. Eventually, Carol managed to force her way through the throng of people and made her way inside to be met with a scene of unimaginable horror. Her precious firstborn child lay on the floor, curly blonde hair sodden with mud, naked from the waist down, and her legs bent at an angle. She was surrounded by resuscitation machines and with paramedics at her side. Unable to take in the sight before her, Carol at first thought that her daughter was breathing, but it was merely the vain attempts of the medics who were seeking to get the child's lungs working again on their own. Sadly, although they battled as hard and as long as they could, it was just too late. There was nothing that they could do. Heartbreaking, that, isn't it? Now, it struck me as I was writing the episode, how would you ever know it was the time to give up trying to resuscitate a small child like that? I know there must come a point, and this isn't me being unkind to the emergency response staff who battled to save Marga in any way by saying that, but to stop doing that, to have to, I can only imagine just how much you must carry something like that around with you. It must be simply devastating. Carol told much later how she kept asking herself, What's going on? Why is Marga undressed? Marga was always a modest child, easily embarrassed, and wouldn't even let her father see her at bath time. She was also extremely wary of strangers, and certainly wouldn't have wandered off with someone she didn't know. As all of these thoughts raced through Carol's mind, she unconsciously removed the blanket from around her own shoulders and placed it across her daughter's waist to protect her dignity, just at the moment that Marga's father James burst in. He'd been off the site and was so unaware of the tragic events that were unfolding there and then in the warden's caravan. Two police officers who arrived immediately and calmly asked the loathers to step outside the caravan, and as they closed the door behind them, took Carol and James to one side to quietly give them the terrible news. There's something we need to tell you. I'm sorry, but your daughter's dead. In shock, Carol and James were driven away to Morecambe Police Station, where throughout the short journey, Carol kept asking the two officers where they were going, pleading with them to take her back to the caravan park, as her marga would need her and be wondering where they were. But despite her distressed state, and indeed she was to require heavy sedation, Carol was still able to tell police that the last person her daughter had been seen with had been 17-year-old John Johnston, who lived in the next plot up from the Lowther family, Plot H, with his uncle, Ronnie Price. On the other side of him, in Plot I, lived his mother, Davina, with Johnston's stepfather, William Johnson, who, as we've said before, due to the intertwined family relationships within the park, was actually Carol Lothar's brother. A murder hunt was launched immediately, and a team of more than 50 detectives were drafted in to join the hunt for Marga's killer, and an incident room was opened at Morecambe Police Station. The operation was spearheaded by one of Lancashire's most senior and experienced murder detectives, Detective Superintendent Bill Hacken, who, playing his cards close to his chest, told reporters flocking to the scene as details of the ghastly crime broke. It is difficult to find words to describe such a horrendous crime. Everybody on the site is being questioned. A man who finds it in himself to commit this crime is a danger. I don't wish to spread alarm in the area, but there is the feeling he could re-offend. All parents in the area must be extra vigilant. He declined to further describe the crime, only referring to Marga having suffered, I quote, appalling injuries. But further that initially, investigators had two main theories on how Margaret met her death, saying, either a man was lurking on the site and Margaret was taken away after her friend left her, or Margaret could have wandered off and have been accosted. 
At dawn of the Thursday morning, February the 18th, search teams fanned out across the campsite and surrounding fields, from the campsite right down to the Asda at the bottom of Salt Air Lane, cordoning off sectors within as fingertip search areas to look for any clues as what had happened to Margaret in the missing hour in which the poor young child had lost her life. Items of her clothing, a pair of red and black spotted ski pants, white knickers with pink, yellow and blue hearts, white ankle socks and red and white trainers were still missing and police felt certain if they could find these then they'd be one step closer towards identifying Marga's killer. All vehicles passing the scene were stopped at roadblocks, the drivers questioned and the registration numbers logged and the occupants of every caravan on the site were spoken to. Meanwhile, carloads of travellers came and went to and from the site all day Whilst inside the camp, a group of the youngest children from the community innocently played, oblivious to what had happened the previous evening to their playmate, but never for one second leaving the gaze of one or more concerned parent. The doll's house at the rear of the site, however, stood empty, being placed out of bounds by the site parents. As news of Marga's death was featured in newspapers and news bulletins that Thursday, a wave of fear had gripped the nation. Throughout the 1980s, a depraved child killer, I mean, what other word is there for them, had stalked the north of England and Scotland, leaving in his wake three dead children, Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg and Sarah Harper. And the initial thoughts of police were, has this creature struck again, this time in Morecambe? Now in the event the thing who killed these three girls wasn't responsible for the death of Marga Lothar, although he is suspected of several other murders stemming back to the 1960s and 1970s. And you never know, it's perhaps someone we shall meet in future on the regular show, though I'm sure the case of those three names that I mentioned is quite a familiar one to the student of true crime. But there was at the time real fear that this man may have struck again understandable because you don't want to entertain the thought that there are too many child murderers roaming around the UK, do you? And parents in the Morecambe area were advised to collect their children from school where available, but those youngsters who weren't able to be collected by a parent were told to walk home in sizeable groups. But privately, police in Lancashire already had at the time their prime suspect, and they felt they needed to act quickly. There was the very real fear that he could travel on somewhere and perhaps never be found again. Or worse still, depending on how you look at it really, I suppose, but from a police point of view, angry members of the travelling community may arrive at the same conclusion and seek to mete out their own justice. And they're not people you want to bugger about with really, are they? Later that Thursday afternoon, 17-year-old John Johnston was arrested and was taken to Morecambe Police Station for questioning, but as in the eyes of the law, because he was still a juvenile, his mother Davina and stepfather William, plus a representative from social services, were required to be with him throughout the interview process. Davina Johnston was to visit his son in the cell several times to comfort him and talk with him alone, where he told her that he was having trouble stomaching the allegations that detectives were putting to him, and he was frightened that they would harp on at him so much that he might end up browbeaten into confessing to murder. But by the third time she was to visit him there, he told his shocked mother that if she believed he'd carried out the horrific, unbelievable crime, then he would admit it to her, and he began to confess to her what he'd done. What the hell do you say to that, eh? The tale that was able to be pieced together much later is as follows. So sure enough, Margaret knocked on the door of the neighbouring caravan and went to watch Wurzel Gummidge. But after only a short while, Margaret's nine-year-old cousin, Carolina, asked Margaret if she wanted to go out and play with her and another girl, a seven-year-old, in the doll's house on the site. Now this doll's house, as we've said, was in reality nothing more than a makeshift shed behind the caravans and very close to the perimeter of the campsite, but it was a popular place for the site children to play, and both Marga and Carolina's parents wouldn't have batted an eyelid with them playing in there. Providing a caring and safe environment for children is enshrined in the culture of travellers, 
with adults particularly protective of young girls and women. So all of the youngsters who lived in Mellishaw Park had had it drummed into them by their parents never to leave the site and never, strictly never, to go off anywhere without a parent or someone they knew very well. No strangers. So as the three girls had played happily in the doll's house, making a pretend dinner in a game of house, they were joined by another of Margaret and Carolina's cousins, John Johnston, who sat silently in the corner watching them play. Before long it was tea time for Carolina, and as she ran home following her mother's call, she said goodbye to the other girl, Margaret and John, and left them all there. The other girl soon left after also. As soon as she'd gone, Johnston asked Margaret if she wanted to come to the local Asda with him, promising her a gift of sweets and fizzy pop, which Margaret readily agreed to, even though her mother was making tea for her at the time. The Asda Superstore was less than a mile away from the park, just off Saltair Lane, and it was towards here that the two cousins headed across the rain-sodden fields after squeezing through a gap in the perimeter fence except that Marga never made it to the shop. About 250 yards from the safety of Mellishaw Camp, the five-year-old girl, who was feeling nothing but safe with her cousin and excited by the prospect of sweets and a can of pop, was suddenly pounced upon by him in the wintry darkness. Grabbing Marga and forcing her face downwards into a pool of mud, Johnston tore off the girl's lower clothing and launched into a sickening, brutal sexual assault upon the five-year-old girl, forcing Marga's face into the pool to stifle her cries and screams as he did so. The youngster fought and struggled as desperately as she could, but Johnston had already decided that she must be silenced to ensure that she could never tell anybody what he'd done. Marga gulped in mouthful after mouthful of wet mud as she struggled to breathe, but she just couldn't survive against the strength of her older cousin, and just before 6pm on Wednesday, February the 17th, she was dead. Now there aren't words, are there really, to that? What the hell do you say to that? It's just horrendous, isn't it? After he'd raped and killed his little cousin, Johnston readjusted his clothing and left her there, carrying on his journey to the Asda. Once in here, some minutes later, he headed straight for the confectionery aisle, picking up a couple of chocolate bars and some bottles of pop, and heading over to the till. Although checkout operator Diane Nash noticed and remembered the scruffy youth for his curly ginger hair and his heavily mud-stained clothing, he was calm and showing no signs, nothing whatsoever, to betray the horror of what he'd done only moments before. His shopping was packed into a carrier bag, and Diane handed him a till receipt, which was time-stamped at 6.25pm. Known to his family as Riggy, at 5 foot 6 inches tall, Johnston was a slight figure who stood out due to the mop of red curly hair that he had, and his habit of always dressing in a collared shirt. He'd been born in Muirhead in Scotland, and was known to be a bit of a loner around the site, stemming from his younger years when he would rarely play with the other children, instead preferring to keep the company of his sisters. As most of the other travellers regarded Johnston as being a bit simple or educationally subnormal, his parents tended to keep a relatively close eye on him. He'd never held down a full-time job, instead passing his days out collecting scrap metal with his uncle Ronnie. He'd been doing just this in the early part of the day of the murder, out and about picking up unwanted pieces of metal with his uncle, and they'd returned to the Mellishaw site early in the afternoon, satisfied with the haul that they'd gotten. After sorting through it, they'd taken it to a local dealer to exchange for money in the familiar routine the two had, and once they'd been paid, they'd headed into Morecambe to get the weekly groceries before heading back to the site to prepare tea. Now during the meal, Johnston didn't eat much, announcing that he wasn't really hungry, and before long he'd left the table and headed out of the caravan, where he made his way to the doll's house where his cousins, Margaret and Carolina, were playing. During an interview, at first Johnston had claimed to police that he'd not seen Margaret at all that evening, until he'd found her after witnessing her being carried off by the stranger who had dropped the child when Johnston had shouted at him, 
But then he changed this story and claimed that he'd not killed his little cousin, but he'd stumbled across her body and had had sex with her corpse. Isn't that absolutely revolting? Yet as revolting as this was, detectives knew that this was a lie, and pressing ahead with their interrogation, eventually the coaxing broke Johnston, and he confessed to the murder of Margaret Lothar. But even here, once he'd admitted killing his five-year-old cousin, he claimed that it had been an accident. Johnston now perversely claimed that, I quote, she deliberately turned me on. He furthered that the five-year-old had even undressed herself and invited him to have sex with her. He'd complied and described how as they were having sex, little Marga's face was down in the mud. When he'd pulled her up, Johnson claimed, he'd realised she was dead, so in a panic he'd left her there and walked to Asda, I quote, to get his head together before making his way back to the campsite during which time Margaret had been missed and her family and the whole campsite was frantically searching for her. It was one more sickening lie that piled insult upon the most already unimaginable horror that the beast had brought to his family and his extended family. Throughout this confession, and I mean, it horrified me when I learned of it and I've barely summarised it here, Johnston's mother Davina and his stepfather William, who was Marga's blood uncle, sat alongside Johnston taking in every harrowing detail of what he was saying. Imagine how that must have been. The following morning Johnston was taken back to the area around Mellishaw by police to show them where he'd abandoned Marga's missing clothing and to pinpoint the murder scene. But he was spotted by a group of furious sickened travellers who were by that time baying for his blood and were hastily bundled back into a police car which sped off as they advanced. At 4pm on the day after the murder, the pathetic remains of Marga's clothing were found abandoned on marshland some 40 yards from where Johnston pointed out that he'd killed the youngster. The clothing was to prove crucial for detectives in nailing Johnston. Johnston's parents, Davina and William, were soon afterwards forced to flee the site and head back to their native island, as the caravan was vandalised. The Lothers were also to turn their back on Mellishaw, leaving as soon as they could for their new home at Preston Lane Camp in Stockton. Neither family was ever to return to the Mellishaw site, and in line with the travellers' traditions, both the Lother caravan and the Johnstons were burned to the ground, as well as the doll's house on the site, whilst Carol's sister also burned all of Marga's clothing. The ripples from the evil act were such that Carol's father, within a year of the murder, was to himself die of a broken heart, his health completely broken by the crime. He was unable to hold his head up in public, grief-stricken, and just unable to comprehend the awful truth that his grandson had killed his beloved granddaughter. On Saturday 20th of February 1988, which is my 10th birthday actually, Johnston was brought before a special sitting at Lancaster Magistrates Court to face charges of rape and murder, sped to court from Morecambe Police Station, flanked by police motorcycle outriders to stop traffic as a convoy of police vehicles, full-on blues and twos going, tore through the heart of Lancaster en route to the court on George Street right across from the main police station. Formerly situated down a narrow side street in the town, the resort's own court had been closed some years previously, and all judicial matters for the town had ever since taken place in the then newly constructed court building in Lancaster. When the door leading from the cells opened and the accused had entered the courtroom, he was so small that he could only just see over the lip of the dock and the only glimpse of him available to the pack of waiting media was his shock of red curly hair. The hearing lasted less than five minutes in total, and not surprisingly, there was no application for bail. Johnston instead remanded in custody immediately to Risley Remand Centre in Warrington. Now although this was a dangerous shithole at the time, holding 50% more prisoners than its designed capacity of 608, and described in the same year by the Chief Inspector of Prisons, Stephen Tumim, as, I quote, 
barbarous and squalid, appalling and totally unacceptable, dirty and dilapidated. It was still preferable to what the travelling community would do to Johnston should they have gotten their hands upon him. Less than two weeks later, Marga's funeral took place up in Stockton on March the 3rd, with more than a thousand mourners from throughout the travelling community arriving to pay their respects on a bitterly cold day. Travellers came from all over the UK and Ireland, from across Europe, even as far as from America, to line the streets leading to St Mary's Roman Catholic Church in Stockton. Amongst these were the entire hundred residents still living on the Mellishore campsite who had held an all-night vigil before leaving early that morning to make the journey across the country up to Stockton. Many of these indeed too were to leave the site for good in the coming months, the spot now tarnished with horror for them and leaving them unable to stay somewhere where one of their own had been so horrifically taken by another. Marga's body was carried to the church in a Mercedes hearse laid in a mahogany coffin adorned with a cross-shaped wreath of yellow orchids and red carnations. Attached to it was a card bearing the simple message, To our precious daughter, you'll always be loved. Good night and God bless. Ma'am, Dad, Jimmy and Joe. The funeral cortege stretched back for more than an entire mile as 136 cars and vans crawled through the streets in a silent convoy. Reaching the church, in traveller tradition, the womenfolk were allowed into the church ahead as the men waited outside, as Marga's coffin was carried in shoulder high, with the devastated family moving in behind it. The floral tributes to the much-loved child numbered so many, that three flatbed trucks had to be employed just to carry them. Father Michael Corbett conducted the Mass of the Angels, accompanied by the hymns that had been specially chosen for the service by Carol. The Lord is my shepherd, how great thou art. Be still and know I am with you, and abide with me. And during the service, Father Corbett spoke movingly of a loving and trusting child, whilst praising the Lothers for the dignity that they'd shown in the face of such an awful tragedy. And he knew full well just how much they had. In the weeks before the funeral, Father Corbett had visited the family on a number of occasions and had gotten to know them quite well. A reading was also given at the service by Sister Anne, a Sheffield nun who was well known throughout the travelling community for the pastoral work that she did. Following the service, Marga's coffin was taken the two miles to the Oxbridge Lane Cemetery, where she was laid to rest on a bed of daffodils alongside her paternal grandfather, Joe. John Johnston went on trial at Preston Crown Court on Wednesday 18th of January 1989 where a large portion of the travelling community, including Marga's entire family, had packed the court waiting to see justice done. As the then 18-year-old was brought into the court, flanked by three police officers, Marga's father James made a lunge for him from the public gallery, having to be restrained by officers. As the six-day trial got underway, the prosecutor outlined what he described as the quite appalling and horrible facts of the case, whilst Johnston, who had pleaded not guilty, had gone back to this fallacy of the mystery man he'd spotted at the tip being the one who'd carried out the killing of his cousin and not him. There were several shouts and a visible atmosphere from the public gallery of the court in what was a highly charged emotional trial, and at one point James Lothar, whilst giving evidence in the dock as he described the last time he saw his daughter alive, turned to Johnston and screamed at him, You're dead, you're dead. The prosecution case was built around what was to be a landmark in the Lancashire justice system. Back in 1988, DNA profiling was still in its infancy, but it had just put Colin Pitchfork away for murder. Tests that had been performed upon samples taken from Marga's body and her clothing that had been discovered some 40 yards away from where she'd been killed, had provided a DNA profile. It was presented to the court that there was only a 1 in 34.5 million chance that someone other than the defendant had been responsible for the rape and systematic murder of Margaret Lothar. 
It was the first instance that genetic fingerprinting had been called as evidence in the county's court system. Even after this, though, after they failed to reach a unanimous verdict, the jury of ten men and two women retired to a hotel, where they resumed deliberations the following day, and Mr Justice Sir Sanderson Temple told them he would accept a majority verdict. After a total of five and a half hours spent considering the overwhelming evidence against Johnston, they returned to the courtroom to deliver a majority verdict of 11 to 1 of guilty of the rape and murder of Margaret Lowther. Friends and relatives of the Lowthers clapped and cheered as the verdict was returned, yet Johnston showed no emotion as it was delivered. Stony-faced, he was ordered to stand as Mr Justice Temple told him, You have been convicted of a murder in circumstances which were revolting, appalling in the extreme, and abominable. Johnston was then ordered to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, with the recommendation that he serve at least 14 years behind bars, and he was led from the dock to an accompanying flurry of jeers and threats from the public gallery. Detective Superintendent Bill Hackin, speaking 20 years later in his retirement, told the Lancashire Evening Post, It was really, really horrific. Of my 38 years in the force, it was the worst child murder I'd seen. It always surprised me that the case didn't seem to provoke as much public outcry as I expected. People were up in arms about it at the time, but it seemed to be quickly forgotten unlike more recent child murders such as the Soham case or the murder of Jamie Bulger. A year after beginning his sentence, John Johnston applied for a move to serve his sentence in Northern Ireland on the basis of being near to members of his family, although reports from the time raised a bit of a puzzle as to why he would, because they had all reportedly disowned him following his conviction, and you can't say that you would really blame them, can you? In the event, he was transferred and served his sentence in Her Majesty's Prison, Magabury, in Northern Ireland, where it was reported that his crime had caused such horror and disgust that he was banned from having any possible contact with youngsters and was not allowed within 50 metres of the creche in the visits room of the prison. His visits were always made to take place at the other end of the room, far from where the creche is. Mostly an unremarkable prisoner, Aside from his horrendous crime, of course, he was described as being an odd one. One prison source commented in 2001, He is a strange character, known in the prison as Gypsy Johnson. He was caught some time ago practising black magic in his cell, and he also seems to have a violent temper. There's definitely a dark side to him. The same year, when reports began to circulate that Johnston may be being prepared for release, his minimum tariff almost served. It sent shockwaves through the village of Carrowdor in County Down, as it was there that Johnston's known relatives lived, and it was believed that if he was released, it was here that he would head back to. Now there were talks of planned pickets and protests about this, which local councillors voiced their agreement with and support for, and a woman named Lynn Clements, who lived near Johnston's relatives in Carrodor, took it upon herself to launch a petition to keep Johnston in prison. Collecting by herself, within a week she'd gathered some 600 signatures. But although there were many who felt the same outrage and fear as Lynn did, the person who had worked most tirelessly to ensure Johnston remained behind bars was arguably the person who had been hardest hit by his crime. Carol Lowther. Carol herself had done something similar to Lynn and had been to Downing Street in June 2001, where in person and in company with Stockton South MP Darry Taylor, she handed in to then Prime Minister Tony Blair a 3,000 name strong signed petition supporting a request for Johnston to remain behind bars. Miss Taylor said at the time, Miss Slother and I hope to persuade the Prime Minister that it is still far too early to even consider reviewing this man's sentence because of the heinous nature of his crime. Margaret died in the most appalling way, and after only 12 years in prison, he remains a threat to the community. There remains the very real prospect that he will strike again and take another young life. 
This must be prevented at all costs. That same month, Carol had again in person handed a personal penned request for the same to Irish Secretary of State John Reid at Stormont House in Belfast. Whilst at the beginning of July of that year, Carol even staged a one-woman protest outside the walls of Magabry Prison, carrying a placard that depicted a photograph of Marga, taken at Christmas 1987, alongside the mugshot of John Johnston. A caption underneath read, She didn't deserve to die, he doesn't deserve to get out. Carol was quoted in an Irish newspaper, The Sunday Life, following this, as saying, It's taken a lot out of me, my nerves are terrible but at least I've achieved what I came here for. It makes me feel sick to my stomach to know that he's just over that security wall and I'm so close to him. It's weird and upsetting, very hard to explain. The following year, Carol was to tell the same newspaper that since the crime, she addressed each day in black, claiming, I only feel right in black, had been on a variety of medication, from antidepressants to sleeping tablets, and still constantly had panic attacks. Even 14 years after the crime, something as simple as seeing someone with the same colour hair as Johnston's could bring one of these on. Carol also told that such was her fear of coming face to face with this monster, that she was too frightened even to visit her own parents' graves across in Ireland, for they were Johnston's grandparents also, in case she came face to face with Johnston there, should he be on a pre-release programme. By that time, she had long since turned her back on the travelling community and had settled in Stockton, where each day she would tend and visit Marga's grave, marking what should have been a happy and monumental birthday occasions by arranging special floral tributes on them, for example, a key for what would have been her 21st birthday in 2003. By that time also, Carol had gone on to have two further children, although it's unsure as to whether she and James had split by that time and these are with another partner or not, as through all of the research that I did for the episode, I couldn't find any mention of James in the years following Johnston's conviction. So, her four children, 19-year-old Joe, 15-year-old James, 14-year-old Jacob and another daughter, 9-year-old Charmaine, were Carol's life, especially her youngest daughter. She was even at that time preparing to be a grandmother as her eldest child Joe and his wife were expecting, yet she would still tirelessly campaign for Johnston to remain behind bars, sickened even the prospect of the monster who took her daughter's life being at large and concerned for the safety of other children. She was vocal on this to all who would listen and featured in many news articles where she spoke frankly about the threat she believed that Johnston still posed. One example from the following year is as follows. I would warn parents to be very careful if this man is on the streets. He probably hasn't seen a woman or a child during the entire time he's been in prison, so God knows what he's capable of. However, new legislation that came into effect on October the 1st, 2001, had transferred the power of releasing life sentence prisoners from the Northern Ireland Secretary of State to life sentence review commissioners and in June 2004 a board of these had examined Johnston's case and agreed that he was suitable for release. He'd served the minimum tariff of his sentence the year before and despite Carroll having battled for many years to keep him locked up the then 32 year old Johnston was released on license in July 2004. Conditions of the license meaning that he was to report to a probation officer once a week and was not allowed to be anywhere near the site of Marga's murder, or near the Teesside area where Carol lives and Marga is buried. He was last believed to be living at an undisclosed address in England. In 2008, speaking on the 20th anniversary of the crime, Carol told the Lancashire Evening Post, The first few years after she died, I bought presents and left them there for her at a grave. I bought prams and dolls, and they were all taken away, but I didn't care. I used to take the children there with a picnic blanket when they were small, and stay with her for the day. Every year I still buy her a battery-operated Christmas tree with lights, because she loved Christmas, and I light it up until the new year for her. Marga never died in my heart, she was always there. 
I wake up in the morning with Marga on my mind and go to sleep with her. I cry a lot and still have nightmares. I dream I found Marga and have her at the foot of my bed and when I wake up she's gone. I dream she's in hospital with tubes coming out of her and with her eyes half open and the doctors are telling me to talk to her that she's going to live. This will never end for me. I still feel like when it's raining she's getting wet and when it's snowing the ice and snow are laying on top of her. When it's frosty and you can hear your feet crunching on the ground I think I've left her in the cold. I keep thinking my marga's crying for me. Unreal words those aren't they eh? Now I ask again I always do whenever we've covered the murder of a child here on the show be it Sophie Hook or Kaylee Barton Keith Lyon, Jeanette, Jacqueline, whoever, the list goes on. How would you ever, ever come to terms with it? My heart absolutely broke and went out to Carol and Marga's family while I was researching this. There are brothers and sisters that she never got to see grow and who never got to know her. There were two parents shattered beyond belief for her loss. I mean, Carol's words of 20 years later, evidencing just how painful that still was even then and must be today. And you had an entire community shattered by the act. So much so that many of them couldn't remain there. But first and foremost there was a little girl who did nothing except go off with her cousin. Someone she trusted and felt safe with. And of course because why shouldn't she have? You should shouldn't you? Why Johnston committed the horrendous crime that he did is never explained. But perhaps he was harbouring dark thoughts and urges for a long time. And these came to a head that evening in the most horrific of ways. I couldn't think of anything to call him but a devil indeed. And now after serving just 14 years for his crime. He's released long since back on the streets once again. And today who knows where. It chills the blood that does doesn't it. And as Carol has said keep your children that much closer to you guys. So it's a truly horrific case this one isn't it as I said at the start and it's one I'm amazed isn't more in the public conscious as Bill Hacking said. It's every bit as horrific as Soham or Jamie Bulger or the bloody McCann debacle. So why is little Marga not as remembered? Hopefully I've gone some way here to ensuring that she now is that much less forgotten. It was a case that jumped out as soon as I come across it in my library because Stories such as Marga's deserve hands down to be told. I know it's been awful listening, but I hope it's a tale that you found informative and indeed a memorable one. And I would appreciate as ever having your thoughts and feedback on it. You can get in touch with me to do so through any of the show's social media links or comment upon the episode thread on the Patreon site. I'll quite even happily chat to you about it over a pint if you'd like and you're able to. Mother Max, we shall have to sort something out, folks. Now the bloody Armageddon's lifting. With that, it's wrap-up time here now. I thank you very much for joining me today, and you can catch me on the regular enthusiast, and I look forward to seeing you guys back here, same bat time, same bat channel, for Patreon bonus episode number 32, which is coming next month. Nothing else remains for me to say except that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul. Wishing you guys all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Thanks very much for joining me. Take care folks and goodbye for now.